Good morning. Uh, it's really good to be here, and it's also really weird uh, to be here. It's a surreal thing for me to be standing before you this morning. And it's not just because I'm not a pastor. I'm not a theologian. I don't think I'll be exegeting our scripture text this morning, and I'm not sure I can tell you how to apply it to your life this week. Um, but that's not what makes it surreal. What makes it surreal for me is that you're New Life Church. I mean, you're New Life Church downtown, but you're, you're a piece of New Life Church. And up until a couple of years ago, I'd have been shocked had you told me that I would be attending New Life Church in 2013, much less speaking before a piece of it on a Sunday morning. And, and I, I want to begin here, actually, and just tell you that my relationship with this institution has been rather um, complicated for a number of years. Um, I found faith at New Life up north uh, in the summer after my senior year of high school. Um, or at least it was at New Life that the faith that I had always been taught um, was finally, that I finally sort of made good on it um, by embracing it. Uh, I was living a pretty dark life at that time, I and mean, some of it was just sort of standard teenage rebellion stuff with drugs and alcohol. Um, but also, and I think um, more urgently, urgently for me at the time, uh, in the way that I viewed and treated myself and other people, I had a really low view um, of people. So be glad that you didn't know me then, and I apologize if you did know me then and I did something awful to you. But in any event, my sister would drag me to New Life um, over and over again for a couple years. And coming there at 18, 19 years old uh, eventually changed my life. It was a long, slow process, but in the end, I had a fairly uh, night and day conversion experience up there in that big blue building. Uh, it felt like I was crossing a threshold, you know, moving from darkness to light. It was like a rush of blood to the head, and it was really extraordinary. I heard the gospel at New Life, and I believed it as if for the first time, and I became a passionate believer. Sunday morning at church, dancing in the aisles of New Life. Sunday night, going back and dancing even harder with more open space. Um, Tuesday night, prayer warriors every week, pacing back and forth, interceding for the world, speaking in tongues. All that lasted for about a year. Uh, like a lot of college students around these parts, or college-age students around these parts, I, uh, I soon enrolled at a school called, anyone know? Or Roberts University. Someone should do a study, a, like a sociological study, of the migration between Tulsa and Colorado Springs um, via ORU. It's really fascinating stuff, I'm sure. While I was at ORU, very shortly after I arrived there, my faith hit a wall, or fell apart. And I say that not to, to blame ORU, that's complicated, and personal context is everything when it comes to this kind of stuff. But for a brand new believer who had not had much uh, recent exposure to Christian culture, especially, especially charismatic Christian culture, the experience of the school was, for me, um, just overwhelming. And that's a story for another time. But I left ORU after a couple brief semesters and went up to Fort Collins to attend CSU. And I spent the rest of my college years um, trying to put my faith back together. And I, I really wanted to be a believer. I didn't want to leave the community of faith. But it never really worked. I couldn't piece it back together, at least not in the way that I expected from reading you know, the likes of C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell and all the other books that my Christian friends suggested that I read in trying to help. I wanted to believe, but I didn't think that I could and also be intellectually honest with myself. But in any event, I soon graduated, and I took my first professional job, and it was here. It was up north. Uh, 
at New Life Church, writing books and articles for Ted Haggard. And I, I adored Ted. Um, he was the man who had presented the gospel to me so clearly those four or five years before, the man whose church had definitely helped make me a better man. I thought that he and his teaching had saved my life. And so when I took that job, I was coming back to New Life, and I thought that I was coming home to the one place where the Christian faith had ever made sense in the first place. But as it turned out, it wasn't really a, a homecoming for me. I had changed over the years, and probably New Life had changed as well, and being back didn't help. Um, and in many ways, I was more uncomfortable with Christianity and less certain about my faith than ever before. So in those first few years after college, working for a big church, writing for a big-time pastor, and I'm thoroughly confused. And of course, New Life really did keep changing in the years that followed as Haggard's profile grew and grew, and, his vi- and the vision of Christianity that was offered here was caught up in that growth and its implications for all sorts of things, from public concerns and national politics and the expansion of American empire to more local concerns, like the way the Bible was taught in this community and the way we did something called praise and worship and what all that means. And as all those shifts occurred, I felt further and further from this culture and more and more alienated, less and less certain, in fact, that I could identify with any piece of Christianity. And I know I keep saying this as a story for another time and not this morning, but the reason that there's a story to tell at all and the reason that I'm happy to be here today uh, is that the story of New Life Church is undergoing profound change and has been for some time. Good stories require change and development. They require downturns and upturns. And New Life has had both. And the upturn that I believe is taking place within our midst has the potential to be extraordinary and already is in many ways. I'm not saying that New Life is rejecting all that was in its past as if the past was uniformly bad. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that seeds of renewal were somehow planted along the way during some really difficult years, and they've begun to spring up and grow. And you are part of that renewal. And so are many things happening on the main campus and throughout this city. And I'm grateful, and I'm lucky, as Glenn would say, to bear witness to it. So as I stand here, I feel a sense of completion and of fulfillment. I have not come to abolish the past. I have come to announce its fulfillment, as we just heard. Brady Boyd and the pastoral staff and many lay leaders up north and here um, in our midst are actively trying to make good on the church's original promise, its original charter at its founding, which was to seek the good of Colorado Springs and to help create that good, to see people in this city flourish because the kingdom of God is best witnessed in that flourishing of the world and of its dwellers, including you and me, but especially our community's poorest and most outcast, the ones who are barely hanging on and who need an assist. Sometimes I'm that guy, and sometimes you are too, but we're all in this together because of Jesus. And, and that's actually the message that I heard at New Life back in the 90s. That's the message that changed my life. You don't have to live for yourself. Your life is about more than just discerning your own needs and trying to meet them. You can live for the good of other people. You can be a servant of the world and its inhabitants and the God whose image is reflected in them. That's the announcement that turned my life around in a radical way. I tell you all this not just by way of personal introduction, but because, as you may have already picked up on, the themes of my story and our church's story um, are closely linked to the themes of the text that we just heard read. Completion and fulfillment and healing things that are broken. 
So the gospel reading for this morning is the next step in the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is the place where Jesus uh, explains his role and begins to speak into this developing controversy about who he is exactly and what it is that he's trying to do. Can we look at that again, the gospel reading? I realized as I was about to get up here that I forgot my Bible when I came to church. Okay, so Matthew five seventeen through 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. So we can stop it there. We don't need to read the rest. But as Glenn has explored with us, up to this point in Jesus' sermon, Jesus has focused largely on telling us who we are. Um, we are the called, remember, insofar as we are like the disciples. We are the blessed, insofar as we align ourselves with the meek, the merciful, the peacemaking, the righteousness, hungry, the mourning, the persecuted. And finally, as we heard last week, we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We're preserving the world and bringing into it honesty and joy. Now, in these statements, Jesus is telling us something about who he is and what his project is. He's addressing kind of implicit questions that were surrounding his own legitimacy and his purpose. What is Jesus saying to his fellow Jews about what it means to be faithful to their tradition and their God? What is he telling them about how to observe the law? And what is the law in the first place? I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So what exactly is he fulfilling What is he not abolishing? So Glenn noted this last week, but I want to stress again that when we hear the word law in this passage, we should not think of just the minutiae of instructions that fill books like Leviticus, what to do and what not to do. Jesus says the law and the prophets here is kind of a shorthand for referring to all of the Jewish scriptures, at least possibly. The law can also mean what is traditionally called the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So, again, Jesus in this passage isn't just referring to the fulfillment of individual works of righteousness or rules, but to a larger body of work. Really, he's referring to the fulfillment of Israel's whole story, because there was the legal requirements, and then there were all these other stories, you know, of Joseph, this rascal who uh, expresses his ambition foolishly to his brothers and goes off on this unexpected journey, Um, or a love story between Leah, um, Jacob, and Rachel, Leah and Rachel, that's not what I meant to say, between Jacob and Rachel. And all these other many fascinating stories are part of sort of, you know, the Israel's sense of itself. And this is what Jesus is speaking to. So what does it mean to fulfill that story? What does it mean to fulfill that, co- that covenant, that, those cycles of stories and the obligations that are embedded in them? Why is Jesus so careful to paint himself as a continuation of all that rather than as a new thing? And why does that matter to the likes of you and me? So like a lot of believers, I've long had a hard time with this classic question of what the heck we're supposed to do with the Old Testament. And part of the problem, no doubt, is that we call it the Old Testament, which suggests to us, I think even if we don't think about it this way, it suggests to us that it's almost dead, that it may have very little to say to us. It's old. It's decrepit. If I could go back throughout Christian history and change some things, there's many things I would change, but near the top of the list, um, I would adjust the way that we've reorganized and versified and labeled scripture. We've cut it up and put it back together in ways that don't always facilitate understanding. I think this is one of them, because at the same time that we call them Old and New Testaments, we're also told that all of the Bible is authoritative. This part is old, 
but you better believe it. This part is new, but you should read it in the same way that you read the old. And yet, when you actually work your way through these ancient scriptures, it doesn't always seem possible that these two halves really make one whole. I mean, didn't we just seem to hear about two different gods, even just this morning? The one in Genesis 9 seems threatened by human ambition, motivated to thwart creativity and human effort, even when they're doing a good job of working together. He confused languages, scattered abroad, ensured often violent conflicts between cultures and people groups. Um, I found a 16th century painting um, of the Tower of Babel. This is by Peter uh, Brugel, and this is the tower in its condition after having just been struck with people at the bottom under debris, the bottom left of the screen here. It's kind of hard to see. But the God in this story, the God in Genesis 9, seems like an agent of confusion and destruction. And notice that he's quite absent from his own aftermath in this painting. But the God in, Genesis, or the God in Acts 2 seems like an agent of clarity. That God is especially careful to bring us all back together, giving the miracle of foreign language acquisition to people because he's so determined to spread the good news of hope and love. And there's another classic painting called Pentecost, by Jean Rostelt. And it's a glor- this is a glorious work, this soft but powerful light that's touching everything. It's about to illuminate even the corners of darkness as it's moving forward towards them, making everything luminescent. In the one story, we have hubris, human hubris and fear. We have confusion and division. In the other, we have warmth and clarity and unification. So this is a classic tension, as old as the church itself, And I'm sure that you've all struggled with it in your own imaginations as you've tried to read the Bible and understand who God is. And I've wrestled with this as well. Another way of putting this and of describing this tension into which Jesus is directly speaking in the Sermon on the Mount is this. How do we understand the interplay of judgment and grace? How do we make sense of this book that spends so much energy on countless rules and regulations and harsh warnings for breaking those rules but also so much energy on testifying to God's goodness and his kindness and generosity with us. A number of years ago, I wrote a memoir that basically gives a longer version of the story that I told you earlier, my story of finding and losing faith. I have a friend who's a former professor um, of mine from graduate school and who's become a well-known religion scholar. And after he read my book, he called me up to talk to me about it. And he said some nice things about the story and uh, what he related to in it and so on. But he also said, there's one thing that keeps bugging me. You talk a lot about having faith, experiencing doubt, coming to Jesus, losing touch with Jesus, and so on. He said, the key measure that you seem to evaluate yourself with is your level of sinfulness. You tell these stories of how you go out and get high and drunk, and that's the illustration of how you're doing in your faith. And if you're living a super squeaky clean life, you see that as a sign of good faith. And if you sin, you see that as a sign of your lack of faith. And he said, I don't understand why evangelicals are so caught up on these issues. He says, you're so stinking self-conscious. And and he said, I think you miss what Jesus actually says. Jesus doesn't give a crap about your sin, he told me. He didn't actually say crap, but I'm not brave enough to cuss in front of you. I'm up here. Um, Maybe next time. But obviously, Jesus has something to say to us um, uh, and do for us about sin. And my friend was being a little hyperbolic. As the Gospel of John puts it, Jesus came to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But 
my buddy was trying to point me away from myself and from my strict self-evaluation about what's right and what's wrong and my whole view of faith and how it's bound up in that. And he was trying to point me toward the faith that Jesus had. He was trying to point me to the faith of Jesus Christ, the faith of the one who told surprising stories about how God deals with sin, especially the very kinds of sins that so easily entangle you and me. He tells the story, famously, of a rich father whose son abandons him and withdraws an early inheritance and squanders it all in an ancient day Las Vegas and then trepidatiously makes his way home, hoping for the smallest amount of mercy. He hopes to slip through the crack of his dad's favor. But of course he finds that there is no crack, that his father has broken down the wall completely and is running out down the road to help his boy find his way home. That's how God deals with people's shame and with our shame. And Jesus not only told these kinds of stories, but embodied them as well as when a woman who had been caught in sexual sin was brought to him by religious loudmouths and accusers. And of course, we know that Jesus surprised them by being strangely dispassionate about her sin, but quite direct about having them confront their own addiction to accusation. Jesus doesn't seek to abolish the law and the prophets, but he seeks to remove, to remove accusation and to make a way for grace. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, cares very much about the habits of our heart. He's less interested in seeing how well we toe the line. This is part of what it means to complete the law and the prophets. Jesus fulfills Israel's storied covenant with God by being the realization of that covenant, by being for Israel what Israel had been called to be, and by showing them not a new God, but a new way to God, a new way of God and of everyday godliness that is available to anyone and everyone. This is part of the shift that we see between Genesis 9 and Acts 2. The earliest people who wrote about Jesus, and I'm talking about Paul of Tarsus and Simon Peter, the writers of the gospel narratives that we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these storytellers were actively trying to come to terms, I think, with this tension and with this fulfillment and what it looked like and how it touched on Israel's story, Israel's Torah. We see this all over the place, how... What we call the New Testament speaks back into the Old, as these guys were confronting it, putting it to different purposes and different interpretations. How is this true in this new light? They began rereading their scriptures and putting them in this new light. And at the end of the Gospel of Luke, after Jesus' resurrection, and one of my favorite kind of small moments from the Gospels, we actually see Jesus beginning this rereading project himself and teaching his disciples how to do it. Luke writes that in those first few weeks after Jesus rose from the dead, quote, beginning with Moses and the prophets, which is to say the law and the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He showed them how to read their story in a new way and in light of him. And Luke does this as well as a writer uh, when he tells of the fall of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So the story of Pentecost, I want you to understand, is not an isolated event in our scriptures. It's not something without precedent. It is evoking the Tower of Babel story that we heard this morning. It's completing it by reversing its consequences and healing them. These two events, in some ways, sound, uh, there's a lot of similarities. In both cases, we have a multiplicity of tongues, and we have some confusion, at least initially, in the second story. But in the older story, that multiplicity is only confusing and divisive and painful. 
in the news story, that multiplicity is beautiful and it's unifying because it's enabling a universal announcement of love. So today is a day that on the church calendar, that the church calendar marks as Trinity Sunday, but it's also the second Sunday in Pentecost, which is why last week our altar and our cross were, uh, were draped in red, a color that recalls the tongues of fire descending on the uh, apostles that we heard about um, in the reading this morning. I love the story of Pentecost. Um, and I think about it a lot. Um, I'm interested, really, in how it pays attention to language, you know, this vehicle of communication that's at once so powerful and so limiting. Even when we speak the same language, as you know, we often misconstrue our words. Uh, we mishear the words of the person next to us. Language is no doubt subject to the conditions of a fallen, broken world. Language, too, is broken. And I love that the story of the Christian church's launch begins with a story about linguistic healing, a story about language being made whole, even if just for a moment, about it being efficacious for everyone who's there to hear. That's a beautiful thing to me. The story of Pentecost also means a lot to me personally, because when I first came to New Life all those years ago and turned my life around, I was proud to be not just a Christian, but a Pentecostal Christian. That was exciting to me. It was like getting an immediate upgrade on my new faith. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, praying for healings, listening to prophecies, trying to prophesy, and all that stuff. Uh, This, to me, was what it meant to be Pentecostal. And again, not long after that first year, I became confused, very confused, by all these doctrines. I found them wretched after a while. And I didn't understand the way they actually played out in Christian ministry. It's one thing to read about them in the Bible. It's another thing to see how they play out, you know, in sort of the social context that we are part of. And for years afterwards, I I really rejected any sense of myself as Pentecostal. And I know that's probably a familiar pivot to many of you. Um, And many others of you may be in different places along that spectrum. But now, I love the story of Pentecost again. Because it reminds us that we are actually all Pentecostal Christians. Pentecost is not something you get to escape, um, no matter how you feel about whatever you think of as Pentecostal Christianity. Pentecost is the catalyst for our community, for any Christian community. It's this event where Jesus Christ became available and understandable to people far and wide, people of widely different geographies and backgrounds and languages. Pentecost is about transcending those differences with a universal announcement of grace and love and repentance, turning from one way in order to follow a better way. The story of the Tower of Babel is a story of confusion. The story of Pentecost is a story of understanding. Pentecost responds to the Tower of Babel by helping it reach its climax as a story. Pentecost tells us that we are not left in confusion. We are not in a situation where the end of the story is people scattered abroad, bewildered, unable to speak together and work together. The end of the story is not God being a force of separation and confusion, about God coming between people always and making them suspicious of each other, hating each other. We still see that happening, though, around us a lot, right? We see plenty of it, of God being used as a wedge that separates cultures and people, God being used as a weapon to bludgeon, um, whether by some tragic misguided Muslims who privilege the most violent parts of their scripture, or even Christian preachers like Fred Phelps, abortion doctor and murderers like Scott Roeder, who do the same thing. That's the legacy of Babel. 
Destruction brought about through radical and God-blamed confusion. God-blamed rifts between people. But in Pentecost, we see Babel beginning to be reversed and restored. We see the fulfillment of the story, which is working toward its end. We see that that story is one of God beginning to reverse confusion by making a truly radical announcement that the way of Jesus is available to everyone, no matter their language, no matter their origin, no matter their context. So one last point about this, and really it's the point to which all this leads. The point about how Pentecost and how the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In the story of Pentecost, the miracle that we see is not a miracle of hearing, but a miracle of speaking. I think this is an important distinction. It's not that the people who were gathered together there were suddenly able to hear the gospel being preached in their own language. I mean, they were. But it's because the disciples were able to speak in ways that they had never been able to speak before. So that's important because it shows us that our language, the church's language, is part of what needs to be restored. We are the communicators of the gospel. We are the embodiment of Jesus. So think about this a little bit as you leave today. Who gets to deliver the gospel? I think that must have been a pressing question for the disciples. Jesus has ascended into heaven. They feel very much without him. Who will carry his message forward? And the answer comes right as the Holy Ghost descends. We do. The people of Christ's church. We are the ones. The great British missionary who you've heard mentioned in this congregation from Glenn many times, a missionary and theologian named Leslie Newbigin, has said that the congregation is the hermeneutic of the gospel. And what he means by that, what that means is that the congregation, you and me, we are the way in which the gospel is interpreted and explained. We're the signposts of what it actually is. We interpret the gospel for people. We're the interpretation of God's message. The gospel is explained to the world primarily not on the basis of what some theologian writes or what some pastor says, but on the basis of how the community of believers enacts the gospel. The gospel that we believe, the one that we actually believe, no matter what we say with our mouths or think in our heads or feel in our hearts, the one that we actually believe is the one that we are enacting for and toward the people around us. They can tell us what we believe. So what's the gospel that New Life Church is enacting? What's the gospel that you're enacting with your own life? Wherever you are, whoever you are, and whatever you do for a living, whatever the makeup of your family, if you're part of the community of believers, you are enacting the gospel. You are the way in which the word of God, by which I mean Jesus, and his message is fulfilled. Like Jesus, you have a role to play in fulfilling the law and the prophets, a role in God's covenantal story, covenantal story with Israel. And by you, I mean you personally, each of you as individuals, but I also mean the plural you, us, all of us together. By virtue of God's presence with us, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, we are the very gospel itself. We are the good news of the kingdom, of God's close proximity, his nearness, the gospel's availability, and its power to heal confusion and consternation. That's the invitation of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. That's his announcement. We are the called by virtue of God's calling. We are the blessed by virtue of our very suffering and our poverty of spirit, our mourning and our hunger and thirst for the world to be made right. We are the salt giving the earth 
flavor, and preservation. We are the light, flooding shadowed corners. And we, as a continuation of Jesus, are just as he was a continuation of God's story, we are the fulfillment of the whole law and the prophets. We're the fulfillment of the story of a good creator's desire to repair his creation, to renew the whole earth and all that is in it, including you and me. So let's um, reflect on this together for a moment and prepare our hearts for confession. I was going to have us read and pray together a prayer of St. Francis, which is a beautiful prayer for thinking about what the church can be but I forgot to send it and get it to Glenn to get it on the PowerPoint. I'm very forgetful um, in a variety of ways this morning. Uh, so be glad I don't do this every week. But in any event, I'm, I'm going to ask you to Google that. Google Prayer of St. Francis and meditate on it in your hearts this week. And you'll, it'll be familiar to you. It's really beautiful. You'll be glad um, to have that um, as part of your spiritual formation, the Prayer of St. Francis. But instead, let's have a few moments of silence. Um, as we prepare our hearts for, for uh, the worship of Eucharist. And then Evan will come up and lead us to the climax of our worship, receiving the sacrifice of Jesus in our common meal. So let's reflect on the habits of our hearts, where we've fallen short and need correction, and where we need to be recalibrated, that we might enact the gospel more rightly in our lives um, in this coming week. Thanks.